Hello, everyone, and welcome into the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. Here with the whole crew today, we got Noah Furtado, Jake Seymour, and Chris Cartman. Let's start it off with you, Jake. What's popping today? Doing good, boy. Kind of getting head on homework for the week and uh, getting ready to kind of watch ASU basketball again on Wednesday and talk about a little bit of uh, what happened over the last week. Noah, what's going on this week? Nothing much, man. Uh, I feel the energy on the podcast here today. It's uh, it's a little bit different. First time with Blake on on the hosting spot, so I'm excited. Chris, you fired up for this pod, man? Yeah, Noah sounds just unbelievably excited. <laughs> I, I mean, it's incredible, actually, uh, how excited that Noah appears to be <laughs> for this podcast. <laughs> Uh, I'm doing fine. Um, feels like it's getting a little bit too warm outside for late February. I'm a little bit nervous about that. I've been enjoying the weather of late. Uh, Blake, I know you're from Oregon, so this overcast, cloudy sort of stuff is probably um, pretty normal for you, huh? Yeah, pretty normal, but I've I've not mind not having the rain. I felt a little sprinkled today. That was kind of interesting. Wasn't expecting that too much this time of year. But you know what's also been kind of interesting? ASU basketball. Biggest win of the season on Saturday night against number 21 Washington State. That was pretty unexpected coming off the heels of an overtime loss against Washington in which ASU nearly pulled off the greatest comeback in a Pac-12 game in the conference's history and then previous to that they come off a loss against Arizona the largest loss in that rivalry's history so continuing the up and down roller coaster ride that is ASU basketball but still the Sun Devils somehow find themselves at 500 at 14 and 14 overall eight and nine in the Pac-12 conference their seventh place among the conference standings so just we've we've wrote about this a lot we've reported on this a lot and this, this recent stretch has kind of embodied the the Hurley era. And so I'll start with you, Jacob, just what this recent stretch has kind of, you know, alluded to as far as Hurley and his squad and how they've progressed this season and in this up and down roller coaster. Yeah, I mean, you said it best. It was a roller coaster. Uh, they lost 45 points to Arizona just a few weeks before, and then they come back home to play Washington, the team that, you know, derailed their 4 and off start in the Pac-12 and kind of sent them down on this losing streak that really kind of threw them off uh, from the you know top half of the Pac-12 standings, fighting for a number one spot against Oregon, all the way down to the you know bottom half of the standings, where they're kind of just sitting there staying afloat before the Pac-12 tournament begins. And uh, you know they were down by 25 points. Bobby Hurley checked out uh, most of his starters uh, entering the second half to put his son in uh, with 18 minutes to play to go in the game. And uh, at that point, it almost seemed like he was trying to you trying to get some momentum, some energy going. Um, and it worked out for them. They ended up uh, fighting back to take a lead in overtime. And, uh, you know, they, they came up short in that game, but they did show some fight at, at the end to kind of get it going. Um, but that game alone, you talk about it, down by 25 points, coming back, forcing overtime, just a wide range of emotions. And then you flip forward to Washington State, and, um, you know, that game that Washington State played against Arizona, uh, you know, came right down to the wire. They just defeated the Wildcats. And there was a few uh, beat reporters watching the game in the DFA media room. And we were kind of watching it and we saw a Wazoo take the lead against Arizona, eventually come out on top. And it was like, wow, that was a really good game. And we just saw what ASU, you know, did to Arizona and lose so badly. It was kind of like, you know, it could be a big blow on Saturday. And then sure enough, ASU comes out and defeats Washington State. So really just the up and downs of the last few weeks, I think is, really important to what Hurley's era have been at, at ASU where you've just seen the consistent kind of 
um, up and down nature of the team and the program under him. And it's really kind of been embodied that through the last week. It's this up and down entertainment that's kind of hooked people a little bit. It's just you never know what to expect on any given night. I mean, there was nearly 10,000 fans at that Washington State game. And Noah, you kind of wrote about it that it's it's people don't know what to expect when they go to an ASU basketball game. Yeah, I I haven't personally been on a podcast to talk about ASU basketball in a long time. I don't know. It might it might be a year or a little bit less than that, eight, eight to 10 months. But I imagine what we were talking about then is what we're talking about now, um, because the only thing predictable about ASU under Bobby Hurley is that they're unpredictable. Um, this is not something new. Uh, we're not in uncharted territory. Um this is what the program is. And, you know, Hurley, he's sort of recruited uh, to to a certain play, style of play that, um, you know, either works or doesn't work. And that that is what it is. You know, the, the adjustments that, uh, you know, some coaches might go through depending on their personnel just doesn't really seem that evident, um, especially this season with this team. Um, a lot of the teams, honestly, with, that Hurley has had at ASU, uh, both the good ones and the bad ones, uh, they they all sort of play uh, similarly. And I think that's an indicator. I mean, he's been at ASU for, for nine. This is the ninth year now. Um, there's enough to look back on to to understand what, you know, what Bobby Hurley is as a coach uh, and therefore what ASU is um, on the court as a result of that. So, you know, it's it's not really surprising, uh, you know, some of these things uh, when you consider that. Isolated they are. Obviously, the largest com- comeback in Pac-12 history, beating a top 25 team, getting smoked at uh, in Tucson, you know, to that extent. Uh, all things that are, you know, on its own kind of surprising, but not when you consider sort of the, the backdrop to what, uh, you know, ASU has been the last decade. Chris, you've been on the beat by far longer than any of us. So you've seen the entire Hurley tenure and how it's gone so up and down. So how does this season kind of, you know, put it all in a nutshell of what he's been through in his tenure at at the helm of ASU? Yeah, uh, about as long as you've been alive there, Blake. Uh, So that's definitely uh, outpaces the three of you combined times, however many. But um, yeah. the thing I want to sort of zero in on here is Bobby Hurley has an extremely uh, emotional disposition. We've seen it in post-game press conferences where he doesn't want to talk about the officiating, but yet he's super pissed off at the officiating or he's super angry at his team or he's super happy with his team. And the that carries over to the side to the the court side where he's going crazy yelling at the officials and he's turning orange in the face while he's holding his head in his hands uh in disbelief at a call or something that happened with his team and is it curious to anyone else that his teams across many years totally different players, they tend to have characteristics that embody their coach. They are very up and down in, in terms of their nature. And to put, to put a finer point on that, like I looked at it 
uh, ASU has a two and five record against quad three opponents, which is the worst record of all teams in the top 130 in the country in the NCAA net rankings. And then ASU beats a Washington State team that had won eight straight games and had just beaten Arizona in Tucson, where ASU lost the week prior by 45 points. And whether or not there's a, a correlation between Hurley's sort of very frazzly up and down nature and his and his players and the way that they the results that they turn in or not is very much a subjective thing, I suppose. Because there are, of course, other coaches, even Bobby Hurley's brother, who is also very emotional and gets has a reputation of doing some similar types of things. And his teams, they don't really have that up and down quality to them. And obviously they're also much better talented though. And so that is sort of the the counterbalance of the argument, right? I personally think there's a major factor. And then of course, um, which none of you guys said, but the when you can't make shots reliably at all, and ASU is one of the worst shooting teams in the country. And I have a story that's actually going to be coming out about this on Wednesday, where I talk to an expert about this. They have some technology that tracks it and whatever. I'll just tease it a little bit. But um, when you're that bad shooting the ball, you're, go you're going to have uh, more games and a wider variance of games where you just can't put the ball in the basket at all levels, even on open shots, which then invariably means that even if your strengths are your strengths basketball sort of requires you to put the bat the ball in the basket right and um so ultimately it is uh we know that this team has to generate offense with its defense fast break points points off turnover super crucial they did that in the first half against washington state that was a catapulting of their confidence and the investment in what they were doing. This is a team that has to hang its hat on the defensive side when they play really connected and tough and disciplined on that side. And then they have better sh shot selection and more of a focused approach on the offensive side. They can beat pretty good opponents, right? Like that, that happens. It just is. It, it, and the players talked a lot in the, after Washington State about they believe that they can do this more regularly and how they can extend their season uh, with a Pac-12 tournament win, which has never happened at ASU. They've only been to the championship once. And for, for this team to win four games seems like, you know, I don't know what the odds would be, but, you know, one in 500 or something like that, a one in a thousand, I'm not sure. But the, the reality is uh, – they believe in themselves, which is like good because you, you need that. But it's also kind of bad because when you believe in yourself so much, it convinces you that the shots that you're taking are acceptable shots. Especially when you have a coach who is extremely uh, uh, willing to give freedom and autonomy to his players on the court. It doesn't really pull back on the types of shots that they're taking. And so I just think that uh, more broadly, this is representative of his tenure at ASU. Of course, early on, they had better shooting teams. The guard U team, you know, they shot the ball well. 
took crazy amounts of not good shots, but the players could make those shots. But in this team and some of his more recent teams, they've had players that took a bunch of shots that they should not be taking. But yet it it is part of the, I would say an undisciplined, and I mean that from an emotional standpoint and a, and a how you actually are focused on going about your business standpoint. Like I don't see enough of a sharpness on who are we, how can we be successful, what are we trying to do, what doesn't work for us, and how does that how does that manifest in a in a in a unity standpoint? Those are the types of questions that I think need to be discussed, asked, that should be talked about quite a lot amongst the players with the coaching staff from the from the coaches to the players because. And this is a whole other conversation to have, but aside from the ability to acquire players, right, via NIL and advantages that that structurally exist between other schools, other conferences, a place like ASU, at ASU, you're going to have to overcome via being a well-coached and well-executing basketball team consistently. Because you're, you're going to be out-talented, especially when you go into the Big 12. And that has not ever really been the case under Bobby Hurley. And that I think is what people, uh, a lot of ASU fans, they just know that, you know, the, the machinations of how that all, you know, exists and uh, what, what's, what that's attributable and all that. I mean, that's debatable and people are going to have conversations about it, but, but more like I used to get the most questions about when is Ray Anderson going to be gone? And now Ray Anderson's gone and that's been replaced by, uh, when is Bobby Hurley going to be gone? And Bobby Hurley signed a contract extension less than a year ago, and there's no AD. So he's not going anywhere, but right, not this year, I don't think. But nevertheless, that is the point that we've arrived at uh, with ASU fans. We've talked about how ASU is one of the worser shooting teams, not only in the Pac-12, but also in the country as a whole, but surprisingly had a stellar shooting performance in that game against Wazoo, shot 49.2% from the field, shot over 40% from three-point land. You mentioned that most of their point production comes from in the fast break and in the points off turnovers, 14 points off turnovers and 10 points in the fast break. And we talk about these up and down performances from ASU. They have some low performances like when it was at Washington on the road, but then they have good performances on the road like they did against Utah a couple of weeks back. So it's kind of the up and down nature. And now you mentioned the Pac-12 tournament run and sort of this end of the season stretch that they have against Arizona and the LA schools on the road. ASU has to pretty much win their next four games and make a deep run in the tournament, if not win the Pac-12 tournament for the first time ever to really secure up their chances. So is it possible, J Jake, I'll start with you, for them to sort of build some consistency off of this recent success against Wazoo? I think the building consistency part is, you know, it's a it's a matchup on matchup, uh, you know, style pretty much because this is a team that struggles in the half court. So they're not going to shoot the lights out like we've talked about. They're a poor shooting team, and they're going to struggle to operate in the half court. So when they play teams who take care of the basketball, which are most teams who are going to be good and competing um, you know, for the Pac-12 tournament, when they can't generate a lot of turnovers and a lot of takeaways to then get onto transition and get those easy baskets, it's really hard for them to get an offense because they have to use their defense in order to kickstart their offense. So 
sure, yeah, they maybe could find some defensive thing to to help them. But when you start facing teams who are really good at taking care of the basketball and doing it at an efficient level, it's hard to really take away and be able to be consistent on that. Um, and then on top of that, too, they're they're a team that, you know, is not a good rebounding team. They're, they don't have a lot of length. They they like to run, you know, the four guards. And in the Pac-12, you look across, there's a lot of really good big men in the Pac-12. So now you have to go up against guys like Umar Balo, uh, Adam Bona, and you start seeing mismatches left and right across ASU's lineup. Uh, Wazoo had a lot of mismatches. Now they were able to take it. They were able to have success there. But we've seen throughout the season that they've really struggled to match up against some of these bigger guys. And to make a run through the Pac-12 tournament, you're going to have to have success against some of those guys. Yeah, Noah, kind of swinging it over to you, your thoughts on ASU and its offensive dynamics, whether that's getting, you know, a guy like Sean Phillips involved. He's kind of been a central part in when the offense is successful or um, just getting up and down the floor on the fast break points and, and in transition, talking about that same thing that Jake did, turning the defense into offense. It's a great point. Um, points in the paint. You know, you look at that against Washington State, uh, 36. That's a high number. You know, for a team of four guards, they were really working toward high percentage looks uh, more than is typical, I think, for that team against Washington State. And that was a big part of what they were able to sustain, you know, for for the majority of the game. They shot 49 percent from the field like that's, you know, that's above average for them. Um, and the fast break points, you know, we're talking about how they're at their best in transition. That's true. But in that particular game, 10 fast break points, that's not a lot, not for them. Uh, and so really what allowed them to, you know, they, they went to the well a lot, Jose Perez in the mid range, uh, him sort of playing off of him, the spacing looked pretty good on most possessions and, you know, they, they, they popped the ball around and didn't settle for threes. They took 14 threes in that game. They, I mean, they take double that a lot of the time and don't make, uh, you know, make as many as they did. They were six of 14. Uh, the efficiency level was high because the way they played was actually kind of, opposite of uh you know what is what is usual and i don't know i mean if they want to continue to to play that way i think they can they're capable uh but that's the case with a lot of hurley teams the talent has never been a question uh you know they they are uh they have the players to to be successful the way they were on saturday i just I just don't know that, uh, you know, from what we've seen, they've had good performances throughout the year, you know, uh, occasionally, but it's not uh, something where, you know, there was a reliable thing where you saw it for two games or three games or four games. Um, they just came in pockets and there's nothing really that leads me to believe that this is going to be a, uh, something that they can take forward, not just through the rest of the regular season, but, but they have to win the Pac-12 tournament and that's four more games. So, you know, it, it's betting a lot on them to sort of recognize what what's happening when they're really successful to to actually play that way, because it's not the way that Hurley is. It's, it's not his style. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, at this stage, I'm not you're not worried about their defense. You know, Jake can mention the size uh, of some other teams. I mean, I think they're just so intense. Uh, in the backcourt with with the four guards that they actually can be very disruptive and overcome some of the the size disparity um they've, they've shown that they've proven that to some extent uh not even just against Washington State but other teams that have uh pretty good bigs um 
but but really we're talking about the offense and and you know my thoughts on that is just you know beyond what uh what they've shown to be good at i don't know that they're going to really actually realize that's something that they have to you know take into the next game or the game after that yeah no you mentioned that asu this this shooting performance and this kind of style offense being out of the ordinary from the typical scoring production we've seen from bobby hurley and company this season so with Chris, with that, um, can Bobby kind of piece together some offensive together, like like the shooting performance that they had against Washington State, or is this another part of that roller coaster ride that we've seen throughout the tenure? Well, theoretically, they can. Um, you, you look at. I think Jake made some good points. You look at um, the the shooting numbers, and you go, okay, well, how can they? piece together several games in a row when there's such a bad shooting team. But then you look at Washington state, the Washington state game, I should say, and they got tons of great shots and they didn't settle for three pointers and Washington state's a pretty good team. Uh, so I think again, it comes down to how focused and how determined are you going to be to try to get the types of shots that you need given the, the caliber of a shooting team that you are like though the better your players at shooting the ball the worst shots that you can get away with and vice versa the worst shooting team you are the more you have to be focused on getting better shots and asu doesn't do that well enough so if you're asu offensively and this is what i looked at specifically because some there's stats out there um that basically give you every player breakdown on different types of situations like three pointers off the catch off the dribble PNR situations, post-up offense, things of that nature. And ASU's best offense consists of uh, Sean Phillips getting the ball on the interior, especially on the right block. He's very effective. And also you can get a lot of passing that comes out of that. That's good action. Number two is Adam Miller, where he gets, screens and other things that are set up for him uh, where he can kind of run off screens and uh, or be a, a more, you know, get spot up opportunities, pick and roll situations, guys go under rather than, you know, flooding the, 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 the ball. And, and then the other one is Jose Perez as a mid range sort of elbow in uh, capability, the one-on-one or, and, forcing teams to bring help defense, doubling you, doing things that then create opportunities. Of course, we saw some of these things come together against Washington State. So, for example, it's Jose Perez on the interior drawing people that allows a kick out to, to uh, Miller for an open three, right? So what you have to do if you're ASU is how can we get our team into as many of those situations as possible. The other one would be Frankie Collins sifting his way through the defense to get to around the basket for layups. So what you need for, if you're ASU is nothing against Jemaya Neal, but Jemaya Neal shouldn't be taking a bunch of two point pull-up shots off the dribble. It's a low percentage and low value for anybody that's looking at the analytics of it. What you need is Adam Miller taking shots that are open, uncontested, especially not, not, not dribbling, uh, Frankie Collins getting downhill to the basket, Sean Phillips getting post-up opportunities, and Jose Perez being a interior uh, uh, 
clear out sort of a weapon and seeing what how teams decide to defend that and what you can do off of that. Those are the four things. So you have to do those things even more. You talked about Frankie Collins being an essential part of that offensive success and defensive success, quite frankly, and specifically focusing on his defense. Lately, he just passed Lafayette Fat Leavers single season ASU steals record set back in 1981-82 season, 76 steals for Fat Lever in that season. Frankie Collins surpassed it in that Washington thriller on Thursday with a win, uh, with not with a win, sorry. He, he had the steal to make it 77 steals in the season. He's now up to 78 after his one against Washington State, but still even after that Washington loss for ASU in overtime, Coach Hurley said that he still needs more out of Frankie and that he wants him to be even more of a leader. So, Jake, what more can Frankie Collins do for this team that he's not already doing? Well, I think anytime you have a player like Frankie Collins, who's, you know, having success on the floor and, um, you know, kind of acting as the general, right, as the point guard, kind of facilitating the offense, um, it's almost naturally his his responsibility to make sure everything is flowing correctly and making sure the offense is going and moving in the right direction, just, you know, with the nature of being the point guard. So, you know, if you're Frankie, what kind of Chris was saying about some of the areas where ASU can exploit and be more successful and with some of those higher percentage um, shots, it's, trying to figure out ways to maybe facilitate those opportunities um, for, for his teammates and making sure they're, they're in situations where they're able to, you know, find success and get those open looks. Um, and then also too, like we had mentioned, ASU is a team that needs its defense to spark its offense. The half court offense has been a struggle all season. Well documented that that's been the issue. So Frankie is now the program leading for a single season in steals. You know, you get more steals, you also get more turnovers. So sparking those fast break opportunities for Frankie and then converting them when you get down to the other end um, is important. I mean, we saw um, on one, on Wednesday against uh, Washington state, uh, Frankie Collins got the third steal to break the record with uh, seconds to go in regulation. And he was fouled, went to the free throw line and then missed two free throws. So, you know, that was an opportunity to con to convert some more points off turnovers, but you know, it didn't happen. And that's just one example, right? There's been other stuff throughout the season and throughout recent games. But if you're Frankie Collins, it's just more so converting those opportunities and making sure your teammates are being put in the right situations to be successful in his offense. No, I'll, I want to get your uh, perspective on his offensive side of his game because against Washington, he had some stellar three-point shots. And it seems like from last season, he's taken some steps as far as his shot from downtown. So what have you noticed in his offensive development? His confidence has certainly been up this season um the expectations surrounding his arrival at asu uh, a couple seasons ago were were that he was going to be closer to this sort of offensive form um the the fact that he has been able to shoot a little bit better has made him a bigger threat um you know attacking the basket and therefore draws more attention to potentially uh produce more opportunities for for teammates so you know that that all has uh, started to to come together more how it you know uh, it probably you know should have been uh, but the sort of transition I think we have to understand that uh, you know Collins came over from Michigan into an elevated role um, uh, pretty immediately as as a sophomore it was only a second collegiate season and I think to some extent he found it difficult to uh, to get a sort of rhythm 
on a team with Desmond Cambridge, DJ Horn, right? There, there are other mouths to feed with, with the offense, and he was, wasn't really the focal point from that uh, perspective. I think this season they've needed more from him in that regard because they haven't had like Jemiah Neal's up and down, right? His, he's inconsistent in terms of what he can provide offensively. You have Jose Perez who, you know, at times can be really good, but uh, in other, uh, depending on the situation, the matchups uh, can disappear from a game from time to time. Uh, I just feel like the circumstances have been a lot uh, easier for him to have those opportunities to just take the ball and be aggressive. And it, it just feels like he's less passive you know, in, in this uh, second season under Hurley. Um, the leadership note I wanted to sort of comment on, though, like there have been multiple occasions this season where he has uh, very publicly acknowledged things that they need to improve upon um, beyond just like, yeah, we need to shoot better. Or, you know, it, it has to do more with the mentality that he actually brings and, and what has allowed him to break the steals record with however many games left to play. Uh, he, he mentioned during the stretch where they were, you know, losing quite a bit of games that uh, the, the team plays according to how well they're shooting. Right. And I felt like that was a, a really profound thing for him to actually call out because he wants to bring that energy, that intensity, regardless of what else is going on. Um, because he, to some extent, understands that is their identity. That is what allows them to to fuel offensive opportunities, easy scoring transition stuff. Um, and to, to see guys who are inconsistent on that end of the floor and then not be on his side, backing him up on the defensive end, that's something that he called out there. And I, I feel like, to some extent, Hurley's really just asking him to continue to do that the I don't know if there's like a more you know at this stage in the season it, it's it's about continuity and really the rhythm that you're trying to get at like they're trying to find uh to to play at their best when they need to is is more a result of just having a steady uh anchor and I think you know Frankie Collins you know for for all of the flaws that we talk about with with this team and and kind of where the program is and how it's constructed uh, he has been, uh, you know, a relatively stable figure for this group and is definitely a positive in terms of what he provides, you know, on and off the court. Being that somewhat stable figure over the past couple of years, Frankie Collins um, developed a strong relationship with Bobby Hurley. Hurley said uh, after one of the games this week that Collins holds a special place um, amongst the players he's coached. So, Chris, um, from the players you've witnessed come through this ASU program, um, and the the interactions Hurley has had with players from a leadership and just a skill perspective, where does Colin stand amongst those those guards? Yeah, he's had some good ones. And I actually would put Frankie Collins really high on the list for me. And that's because, you know, everybody has like certain things that they like about basketball uh, that are maybe slightly different depending on who you ask. But his style of play is uh, very appealing to my eye. Uh, I think that he's a two-way player, great defensive player, one of the best I've seen. Uh, transition, open court, on the ball, uh, energy is really good. I think he has a steady disposition. He's emotionally um, not somebody that you know has the high highs and low lows. The free throw shooting is a big knock. You, you can't miss uh, three 
free throws in the final 45 seconds. He's literally cost the team wins in his career. Point guard, far and away, the guy who has to shoot free throws the best uh, in that in that in that aspect. Um, uh, but I really do think that if you put Frankie Collins on some of these elite basketball teams around the country in place of their starting point guard, they wouldn't probably fall off much, if at all. Like he's somebody that is hurt by players not being able to do a lot of things that he could do with even better players, if that makes sense. And the, the leadership thing is so hard because uh, Bobby Hurley's talking about, he needs more from Frankie Collins. I think Frankie Collins needs more from Bobby Hurley. I think that the leader who is Hurley sets the framework for what we can and can't do as a team. And then your point guard enforces that, but there hasn't been enough of the, set boundaries of what we can and can't do in terms of shot making, in terms of our emotional vulnerabilities or stability, I should say, and these other areas. And that is where it makes it harder on your leaders to assert themselves and uh, have the the sort of the moral authority within your team to do that. Not saying Bobby Hurley's bad at that. It's just that it can be better, which then would make uh, leadership among players even better. Kind of shifting gears toward the diamond now. ASU baseball is in full swing so far. They just finished up their rare four-game series against a Big Ten opponent in Ohio State. Sun Devil split that one. Uh, I know we were, were all out there at Phoenix Muni this week, and we, we know there was a lot of talk coming into this season of just how special this offense was. Willie Bloomquist, amongst other players, kept talking about how this lineup is up to 16 deep, very deep in the lineup, and it's shown so far as ASU is averaging 9.9 runs per game, and they've had six of those positional players receive preseason Pac-12 honorable mention honors or better. So that's hasn't been an issue so far, but just thoughts on uh, this offense, Jake, and sort of its trajectory and how it can stack up against some of the other lineups in the country and, of course, the Pac-12. Yeah, I think the one thing that has held true with the lineup is obviously the explosiveness, but also to the the depth that they have uh, on throughout the lineup. Do you go and, you know, listen to anything Bloomquist said preseason? He, you know, really talked about how much depth the, the lineup had and how players can be moved around and it would create – um, you know, more opportunities for other guys that they need to give somebody a day off. Um, we saw Campbell's get moved out to the outfield to get a little bit of day off from his legs, and he was still able to contribute in the lineup with his bat. And, you know, they didn't lose that much, too, with Newman coming in. Um, you know, and he he's had a little bit of struggles, but he put together some good ABs and managed to, you know, keep something going through those at-bats. Um, and even still, you look at a guy like Brennan Compton, who's DH'd, um, for a majority of the season so far, but he served some time out in the outfield to, again, provide some more rotation and depth throughout it. So I think that's kind of the biggest thing I'm taking away from it. Uh, it's just the depth so far, and even two in the infield. Like, uh, New Contratus, he went down with a back injury for the first uh, two games, or first three games, excuse me, of the Ohio State series. And they moved Carstetter from second base to third base, and uh, Ethan Mendoza, the freshman, stepped into second base, and the lineup was still really good. So that depth so far has really helped the offense continuous stride and uh, you know this weekend obviously against TCU and Texas A&M is going to be a big test just to see how they stack up against some of the you know best pitching in the country and the depth's been kind of forced more so to show up due to the early unexpected injury to Nick McLean who broke his handmade bone early on he's expected to actually return this week per Willie Bloomquist in his press conference revealed that uh 
that uh, Nick McLean's going to have a doctor's appointment today as we're recording this podcast on Monday and is expected to get cleared this week. Um, so, Noah, they're, they're having this offensive success without one of their best players in the Pac-12 honorable mention last season. It's It's been something to see where the offense has been so stable and so strong uh, without him. But baseball is baseball, right? You have nine guys in the lineup. And, you know, we've really been able to see one through nine, honestly, a lot of production. Um, they they just hit the ball hard, man. They have, they have a certain aggression that, uh, you know, and an understanding going up to the plate that if a pitch comes through, and even if it's the first pitch, they're going to jump on it. Uh, a lot of their... Uh, big innings have been fueled by that, and Bloomquist has seemingly uh, etched that into their approach, not just player to player, but as a team. And it's showed; it's been very evident. Um, even you know someone like Isaiah Jackson, who had really struggled his true freshman season uh, offensively, at least he's really come into his own and has shown a mix of aggression and uh, a patience at the plate. Honestly, that. Before Brandon Compton's go-ahead Grand Slam on Sunday, Isaiah Jackson fell into an 0-2 count. And, you know, the Jackson of old, uh, Bloomquist had mentioned this post-game, uh, you know, wouldn't have done uh, what he did. He worked it to a 2-2 count, ultimately got hit by a pitch, loads the bases, and leads uh, into Compton's big hit. Uh, so there is some maturity uh, on that level. And I think that sort of speaks to how Bloomquist has been able to build this offense from year to year. This is year three for them. And there's been a clear line of progression to actually follow and see what, uh, you know, what they've done. The players in the lineup right now, you know, a lot of them, uh, they've, they've been there before. Ryan Campos, they flipped him from Arizona a couple years ago when they first arrived. New Contratus, Isaiah Jackson, they were true freshman starters last season. They got valuable reps there. Right. Nick McClain transferred in from UCLA last year. He's going to be one of their best hitters again this year. Right. And then they've just been able to pile on. The, the additions this year were more so to to polish and refine as opposed to build because they already had that foundation. So I think what we're seeing from them, uh, they're reaping the rewards of, you know, sort of a three year plan, a three year track that at this point seems to leave them with with something that is reliable on offense, even though there are some other things to to figure out, pitching, fielding, that sort of thing. Chris, as we know, ASU historically has been known for its brand nationally as an offensive powerhouse. And now Willie Bloomquist through the years has now built up some pieces together through both uh, the recruitment and as well in the portal to stack up a lineup together to be able to have this elite offense this season. So uh, do you think he's turning a corner in that department to where he's getting ASU back to that cultural standpoint of that that offensive reckoning uh yeah um this is a a very good offense seemingly that still have to prove it over a longer stretch of games um and we have to your point seen just so many tremendously talented asu offensive teams over the years like this is not like for you guys this is like atypical from what you've seen at ASU from my experience this is sort of like normal uh you know especially if you go all the way back the the BB core stuff and all that but the the I think the key thing I want to hone in on here is that a lot of teams score a lot of runs guys like I looked at it there's 90 teams 
averaging eight or more runs out of 294 teams in the country right now. So yeah, ASU is really good at mashing the ball, but a lot of other teams are also really good at mashing the ball. And you have to put it into the context of what you guys have seen over the last couple of years relative to what everybody else is capable of. And then also relative to who actually has very good pitching because the very good pitching, as we're going to talk about in a minute is in much shorter supply than the very good hitting. And so, the, but the, I think what matters about this so much is ASU is going to have to invariably win a lot of high scoring games to get to it's where it aspires to be, which is the postseason. And so it's going to have to have success much more than it has in the last few years at chasing Friday starters out and getting into the bullpen earlier in some of these three game sets. If to me, if that stuff starts happening, that's a that's, that's not only a, a the best example of how good that ASU's offense could be with, you know, Tobias and, and Isaiah Jackson being super impressive players, like, among a variety of others, including newcomers that I didn't know anything about and now are doing really doing a really good job. Um, you know, Mendoza as a freshman is like the perfect example. But ultimately, uh, they're they're going to have to do or what they've been doing already throughout the whole season to get to where they want to be. And they're going to be going up against much better pitching in the next week and then a lot of other teams beyond this. Yeah, much better pitching coming up. You talk about it, TCU and Texas A&M, two top 10 teams on the docket this week at Globe Life Field. But we, you mentioned the pitching, and for ASU, it's been very up and down and not, not very consistent at all, especially in the back end of the bullpen. Um, ASU, in half of its games thus far, has only allowed uh, opponents to score single-digit runs. The other four um, have been double digits, but we've seen Thomas Burns, first true freshman starter since 2006, He's kind of the leader of this staff and the most consistent guy so far. We've seen a guy like Matt Cornelius, who's been the transition guy in the bridge. Um, and then Cole Carlone's uh, struggling to find his consistency thus far, but has the raw talent there. So we've seen experimenting from Bloomquist as well as Peraza, putting guys in different situations. So how, Jake, do you feel the, the pitching staff is sort of shaping up thus far? Yeah, it's been a lot of kind of plug and play and see what works for Bloomquist. So far, we saw it. There's a lot of, you know, players that are maybe people have complained on Twitter about like, oh, why, why was he in for, for too long? And it was it was because, and Bloomquist has said this post game is that they wanted to see what they have with their bullpen um, and put it kind of to the test early on so they can figure out when they actually do need guys and like, hey, who can we throw here? They know exactly who to go to. And, you know, he said it, we're figuring out the gamers and we're also figuring out who's not. And, you know, that's where this bullpen is at right now is that they're struggling to figure out the guys to guide them to the middle innings to get to the closer, obviously Carlone. Um, and they've even had to basically take Carlone and ask him to now take that one inning say that they would maybe want in the ninth inning and stretch it all over two innings and maybe put him in the eighth inning. And, you know, he even said it before in the seventh inning where on uh, Saturday they were had every intention to go to Carlone in the eighth to try and get a two-inning save, but they couldn't because in the seventh inning they let up a bunch of runs and it didn't make any sense to throw Carlone at that point. So it creates this almost necessity to find not only – a guy like Carlone to come in and provide those two innings uh, save situations, but also to find guys to navigate it through that bolt through those middle innings, especially after they are, they got good starts from their starting pitchers 
uh, especially, you know, on Friday and Saturday from Burns and uh, Markle. They both threw the ball really well, got them through five innings, and it, they figured, they find themselves in a situation where they just need a little bit more to get to the closer, and they fail to come up with it. And that's where Bloomquist is trying to figure out what is the best rotation and what is the best method to get them to that eighth and ninth inning. Yeah, no, I kind of wanted to hit on this experimentation that w Willie Bloomquist is going through with his bullpen. Uh, we saw some situations this weekend to where he may have pulled a guy like Matt Cornelius a little bit too early and Sean Fitzpatrick in one of those Ohio State games. So um, with also trying to desire extending his starters, um, uh, how do you feel like he's managing the bullpen so far and his his approach to that and figuring out guys in, in different situations? Well, their initial understanding of the bullpen was seems to be thrown for a loop a little bit based on the early returns. Uh, Peraza told us in the preseason that there are about five or six guys that he was looking at to be featured bullpen arms. That included a couple of returners, Matt Teeting and Jonah Giblin. Matt Teeting has been up and down. He gave up, you know, four or five runs in his first outing uh, or appearance. And, uh, to some extent has had uh, positive points. He had that one out save, but then comes back in, in one of the other games this weekend and then can't get through an inning, has to bring in Sean Fitzpatrick to put out the fire of a bases loaded situation that he created. So the, there's that. Jonah Giblin hasn't had a good outing yet. Uh, in a couple of appearances, he's given up a lot of runs, uh, been knocked around. And, and so when those are two guys he, he considered to be reliable in terms of the bridge guys from – uh, a starting rotation that they're trying to test out to the back end. Um, you know, it's not great, especially when that back end includes a freshman closer like Cole Carlone. You said it, he has the talent. I just think that there's going to be a lot of growing pains for him, um, especially when they're going to want to stretch him out to two, three innings to, to some extent because of the limitations that they're sort of foreseen with the bullpen. Um, so, you know, right now, honestly, uh, when, you have Bloomquist considering uh, Ben Jacobs both as a starter and as a potential relief guy because they might not have enough in the back end. I think that's sort of telling about, uh, you know, sort of the bind that they're in right now. Uh, there's going to be a lot more evaluations to to come, especially when they go up against TCU, Texas A&M uh, this weekend. It's going to be big uh, from that standpoint. Um, but I don't know that we're really going to know exactly where this team is at, uh, uh, where, where its bullpen is at. Uh, it feels like it's going to be a, a fluid thing because what we're seeing is, okay, this guy's game one night, then he's not the next night. And therefore you have to sort of piece things together um, on the fly, which, uh, you know, in some cases has worked. Matt Cornelius obviously gives them some good, good appearances. And therefore, you know, he's moved up the totem pole, but um, be, beyond that, there's been just a lot of mixed results. And I think that makes it difficult for, you know, a coaching staff to kind of figure out what you have, um, especially, you know, they're only a week or two out from the start of Pac-12 play, you know, Oregon series coming up uh, in a couple of weeks. So there's still a lot to sort of sift through. And I don't know that there's really, you know, based on the eight games we've seen, uh, any sort of confidence that you can put to a full sort of sixth, seventh, eighth inning guy um, to bridge to the back end. Uh, the rotation's been decent. They, they're still going to have to sort of uh, prove that over a longer period of time. Thomas Burns obviously looks excellent. Connor Markle uh, and Tyler Meyer are kind of working back into to form right now. Uh, but I think ultimately, if they can have four or five innings, four to six innings 
from those guys on a consistent basis that uh, that'll at least give them some some way to to work from, you know, for what they have in the rest of the staff. Chris, over these past couple of seasons, it seems like ASU's pitching has been its hindrance in terms of finding its way into the tournament. Sun Devils were the first team out of that uh, tournament selection last season. And despite them having six arms drafted there, when it came to near the end of Pac-12 play against teams like Stanford and, and other elite Pac-12 opponents, they they seem to allow more runs than expected and uh, the bullpen kind of collapsed. So how does ASU find some su sustainability or solace um, throughout the season with uh, with the pitching staff? That's really hard. And I, I don't mean to be like a, a downer necessarily, but I don't think it's going to happen. Um, uh, I mentioned, you know, the pit, the great pitching is in, is, is, much more narrowly on elite teams. I, I I watched, you know, super regionals in the college world series last year and no exaggeration. Some of these teams, you know, your LS used, uh, you know, Vanderbilt's Florida's of the world, they have five or six pitchers better than any ASU pitcher. Like that is the amount of concentration that exists with how good that these staffs actually are. And you know, I haven't watched as many innings as you guys have, you know, clearly and been at the ballpark or whatever, but the, I think coaches, Bloomquist, Sam Peraza, who's pitching coach, they know if people are good, like, you know, like you've been around baseball your whole life, you know, if somebody's good, the problem right now is they're trying to figure out if anybody's decent because they know they don't have anybody good. Otherwise you wouldn't be having a lot of the, let's figure it out stuff happening. Right. You wouldn't, it wouldn't be like, let's, uh, let's, you know, see how this guy responds in this situation. And this guy, it's not dialed in because you already kind of know, you know, you're not going to say this, right. But you already kind of know we're probably not going to have anybody be like really good for us as a middle inning or long reliever. Right. So situationally, they're going to try to figure out who, you know, what works best against which type of opponents and, 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 you know, player combinations, or if we can get a, use a guy to get this guy out that, you know, they're going to find, they're going to, you know, dive into that part of it. Right. But um, we're just not, it's a phenomenal thing for them that they evaluated and got Thomas Burns like that speaks so well for them. And Carlone looks like he's going to be very, he's very talented and he's going to be good when he sort of refines a little bit and they're going to have to out evaluate people. Then they're going to have to try to retain them. Right. They, they, they lost, they last year, they got a great freshman middle infielder uh, from Louisiana and then they lose him after a year because it's hard to retain players and uh, Luke Hill. Right. So the, the, the bottom line is that you're going to have to, it, it's, the, it's so hard and you, there's so many things that you have to do to be successful. So I'm not trying to paint this as an easy thing for the coaches, but I, but this is why, again, they're going to have to win a lot of high scoring games and hope that Thomas Burns can deliver a lot of five, six inning type performances for them to, to have a chance in accomplishing their goals. 
as I mentioned in the last segment, ASU just missing out on last year's NCAA tournament and regional projections. Obviously, this is a program built on Omaha with five national championships. It's been quite some time since they last got to that stage. So, uh, Jake, what what did they got to do this weekend? I know it's a big weekend with them playing TCU, Texas A&M, too, in terms of walking away this weekend and feeling like they are in solid standing with where what they've accomplished in non-conference play. To me, I'm just curious to see how this lineup faces up against a really good pitching staff and also out of the state of Arizona because we've heard from talking to players and coaches um, you know, in the program about how easy it is and how much easier it is to hit in Muni, just given the the weather, the climate's drier, hotter. Um, and, you know, that ballpark is, you know, friendlier toward hitters rather than pitchers. So now you're in a big league ballpark. Um, you know, how do you manage that explosive offense? And you're going against really good pitching. Um, it's going to be a barometer to see where this team stacks up against other teams in the Pac-12. Obviously, USC is the fourth team going out there um, with ASU, Texas A&M, and TCU. So uh, USC was picked to finish fifth in the preseason uh, poll in the conference, and ASU was picked to finish sixth. So depending on how ASU and USC fare against these two teams, could be a you know a way to see where ASU stacks up against a team that was picked to finish in a similar spot for them. Even a team like UCLA, who fell out of the top 25 rankings today because they were swept by TCU over the weekend, that's a team that if ASU goes well against against TCU and they just were swept against UCLA, who was picked to finish six, uh, second, excuse me, in the conference standings, then you can start to say, okay, well now we're, we have a direct uh, competition comparison between what UCLA did against TCU and what ASU did and vice versa with USC. So that to me is kind of what are the big points um, and telling points for for to see where this team is in, after this weekend. In the Pac-12 so far, Oregon State has been looking like one of the dominant teams in the country. And then there's kind of this next group, and it seems like ASU, UCLA, Oregon are all kind of weaving into that second uh, second part of the train. And ASU this weekend has a chance, Noah, to kind of further establish itself in that in that runner-up spot. It does. Um, I don't know. I'm not confident that they will come away with two wins, two two or three wins out, out of this weekend. I don't know that they'll come away with one win. Um, I think it's more of sort of a barometer to see how competitive they are truly uh, against two top 10 teams. What we've seen and what we haven't really mentioned on the podcast to this point is they have played good competition. Cade Pilcher, the Santa Clara ace, they knocked him around. That was a good sign for what the offense could do, um, you know, against really, you know, ace, uh, a Friday ace chasing him out, like Chris had said, uh, what they're going to have to consistently do throughout the season. They face a Kansas State team with Barema, who's a second team all Big 12 selection from last season. They did well against him, knocked him around for four or five runs. Tyson Neighbors, the closer on that team, who's a top 75 MLB prospect, had trouble against this ASU team, albeit at Phoenix Muni. So I think that, you know, especially against, uh, you know, a TCU team that uh, is pretty complete uh, and Texas A&M that has a lot of bright spots, even, you know, uh, at positions of weakness, uh, if you even want to call it that for the number seven team in the nation, uh, it's going to be difficult for them. Um especially on the road, you know, they're, they're away from uni, like Jake had said. Um, I just think for the most part, you want to see how they respond to, uh, to adversity, to some big innings, which, I'm, you know, we, we should kind of expect 
after you know what we've seen through the first eight games. So um, if they go 0-3, let's say, over the weekend, uh, it, it kind of depends on what kind of 0-3 it is. <laughs> is it is it a, a blowout by blowout kind of 0-3? Is it a competitive, like down to the last couple of innings, 0-3? Um, you know, and if they pull out a win, I think, you know, that that speaks volumes for what this team might be capable of as well. So, you know, the implications uh, are going to be sort of calibrated, especially because the, the competition is so elite. Chris, we know it's been a while since ASU made it to Omaha. We know that's the program's expectations, but given the situation they have with the pitching this season, um, fans, I, I know, probably are longing for ASU to get back to that point, but how realistic can we be about where ASU can, can it, what they can achieve long-term in this season? Uh, it's an important barometer. Uh, I know I was talking about two or three wins. I'm thinking to myself, dude, I mean – if they get one win out of these three games, that would probably be a good result. Like, like they, I'm sure that they wouldn't like take that right now and, and call it a wrap, but you know, the way I see it, it's, it's, it's going to be tough to get a win. Um, you know, what Thomas Burns is going to go up against is going to be way better than what he has seen to this point. Um, and um, yet they, if they lose all three games or they're, they're, they're below 500. Right. And is there, is the schedule going to be that much easier when you're in the pac 12? No, uh, it's not. Um, you know, it's a little bit easier than going up against these two teams perhaps, but on the, on the overall of what, what ASU will have seen through its first, uh, what is that? 11 games or something. Um, no. So uh I think they're I think that I think they're gonna need to, you know, show that they can score a lot of runs even against this caliber of an opponent. That's what I'm looking to see. It'll be interesting stuff to see this weekend down at Globe Life Field in Arlington, Texas. ASU taking on Texas AM twice, TCU once. Get a good look at the Sun Devils. ASU basketball going to be taking on Arizona on Wednesday before rounding off their regular season in Los Angeles for the road trip there. Spring football still several weeks away, um, not until late March as we know right now, but absolutely continue to stay tuned for our coverage. We'll have plenty of stuff and uh, to get you ready for spring football coming up, but that's going to do it for our Sun Devil Source Report podcast. For Noah Furtado, Jake Seymour, and Chris Cartman, thanks so much for tuning in. Subscribe and stay up to date on all ASU athletics news at sundevilsource.com. I'm Blake Neiman signing off here and wishing you all a great rest of your week.